Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have been on the beginnings of a liturgical journey in our worship series through heresy. And if you were with us last week, hopefully that didn't seem as traumatic as we might have anticipated. But last week we were covering a, a theology that was considered to be heretical because it was about choosing to replace certain people and exclude them, which of course is not what Jesus says he came to do. And so supersessionism was last week, and this week we're going to do a much bigger heresy. So the entire genesis of this worship series began from my time with the Board of Ordained Ministry. And each annual or central conference in the United Methodist Church, the global denomination, has a Board of Ordained Ministry, and on it sits not only ordained clergy, both elders and deacons, but there are some licensed local pastors on there. There are also some laypersons on there. And our job is to credential for clergy. We make sure that they have professed the faith and the theology necessary to be clergy and to work within the conference that they are assigned. And so on the Board of Ordained Ministry here in the Virginia Annual Conference, we see a number of candidates and provisionals who come through us on their journey to full ordination. And we see so many of them that the board subdivides into three. And even if we needed to subdivide to more, I think we'd stick with Trinitarianism and do three into teams A, B, and C. And then each of those teams then further subdivides into committees, depending on whether we are interviewing people who are trying to enter into the provisional probationary period to be ordained, or people are coming to the end of that probationary provisional period and are looking to be fully ordained. But either way, when they come before us, um, I sit on the same committee for both of those sets of people. I sit on the practice of ministry committee, which means that I get to see how they are practicing ministry. I watch multiple worship videos that are submitted by these candidates. I see how they are officiating the sacrament of Holy Communion if they are applying to be an elder. I watch their proclamation, how they preach and teach. I get to see the curricula that they design for Bible studies. I get to read their papers. But my favorite part is getting to interview them and being present with them and hearing them express how what they know, their theology of God, is lived out in their practice of ministry. And as I do that for both rounds of those, there are other members of my team who are doing it for other committees, including another one that is omnipresent, and that is theology. Now, if you ever talk to anybody who has been ordained or who has gone through um, and had to be before one of these committees, they'll always tell you the worst is theology because you have to get that just right. If you don't get that just right, we're going to have problems and we're going to have to continue you. And so there's a lot of pressure there. You also don't want to go before the theology committee and find out that your theology isn't good. That's a little depressing. And so people often have a lot of anxiety about going before that committee. Now on team B, my team, the chair of the theology committee is the Reverend Alan Combs. And Alan is just a miraculously, incredibly 
talented and wise clergy person, and he has a real passion for theology, so it's a good fit for his gifts and graces. And he chooses to come wearing a suit and a clergy collar, and he has long hair that he wears and a low ponytail and he has glasses, and he looks like he could be John Wesley. <laughs> looks like he could be, which probably doesn't ease the person that's sitting across the table from him because he can be very intimidating. But if you start to get your theology correct, he gets very illuminated and, and bright and, and very joyful. But if you get it wrong, he looks very intense as we go. And so as we've been doing this, what happens is we interview with people and then each committee writes a report that becomes part of the file. And then we come together as a team and we read those reports. And then we vote on our recommendation to the full board for each candidate. And then we create as a team a letter that is articulated to the candidate and to the full board. And hopefully that's all continuing them down the line for ordination. But every now and then you hear that there are some problems in theology and generally, they all exist in the same area. It is, a, it is a heretical theology that is called modalism, which all of you already know, correct? So I can just skip to the end of this sermon. Modalism is a problem, and it is prevalent. It is just ubiquitous in some cases, because I asked Alan as I was starting to be inspired for this worship series, I would like to know what are the top 10 heresies that you see in the committee. And he goes, that's easy, one through 10 is modalism. I was like, one through 10? You don't even wanna like throw in a nine? Nope, they're all modalism. Okay, all right, so let's figure out what modalism is. Well, just as I was showing you in children's time that we understand the Trinity to be three separate but co-equal persons, modalism says, no, that's not quite accurate. Modalism talks about roles or modes of God, that God is presenting self as this in this current context, but then later God will be something else. And when you start talking about the Trinity, is that like in the Old Testament, maybe you've heard this, in the Old Testament, God shows up as God the Father. And in the New Testament, God shows up as God the Son. And then after Pentecost, God shows up as God the Holy Spirit, which seems to say that God is simply like kind of changing roles and outfits and showing up for today. However, even in our scripture today, you'll see that God the Son, Jesus, is talking about what God the Father will do in heaven and how God the Father in heaven will send God the Holy Spirit back down to earth to be with and within us. So unless God is suffering from disassociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality, multiple personality disorder, then we need to understand what is happening here. Now, unlike supersessionism, which has strong roots in the kind of disagreements that led to things like the Holocaust, modalism is probably not going to lead to mass genocide. Let me just clear that up right now. As prevalent as it is, it's probably not going to cause people to suffer and die. So you don't have to worry about that. And the biggest problem about modalism is that we as clergy have taught it to you. Not intentionally, we weren't trying to lead you astray, but what happens is we try to do something that we think will help. We try to give you a metaphor, right? We're big on metaphors. Let's give you a metaphor that will help you to grasp this crazy concept that seems like a paradox, right? You hear it on the outset, and it sounds very strange, and then hopefully as we work through the theology, it makes sense. But sometimes to get you there and over the hurdle, we give you a metaphor. And the metaphor is actually 
subverting what we're trying to accomplish. Let me give you an example of it. God is like H2O. God can be in a solid form, in a liquid form, and a vapor form. How do we decide who gets to be ice and who gets to be steam? How do we decide that, right? Because it gets a little weird. So you're like, okay, so obviously we're going to go with the Holy Spirit as vapor, because you know that airiness thing there. We'll do that. And then you get down to God the Father and God the Son. Now clearly, like you could touch Jesus, so maybe Jesus should be the solid, but then Jesus is all about baptism, so then that kind of doesn't work so well. And then you have to figure out where the metaphor has really just broken down into uselessness. But what we're doing is saying that those molecules of H2O are able to take these different forms, but they don't do it simultaneously. A molecule of H2O must only exist in one of those three forms at any given moment, but God can exist co-equally with all three persons of the Trinity at the same time, which is what the gospel accounts tell us about the baptism of Jesus that on the day in which Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, that all three persons of the Trinity were present, active, and had something to say and do. So you have Jesus there being baptized, God, the incarnation of Christ, God the Son. You have God the Father in a voice coming from heaven declaring, this is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. I like it every now and then when they throw in, listen to him. I like that one. And then you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. All three are present, active, and conveying with us that they are in right relationship with one another. They are not simply God going, okay, hold on, people messed up, let me go put on my God the Father robe and come out here and lay down some plague. That's not what's happening. Instead, we see that they are in relationship with one another, encouraging us to be in relationship with God. And that's really important. That's a foundational theology. Who is God and what does God want from us? You have heard probably there's a song that is very prevalent in Christianity about you were made to worship. Well, worship is a response to the relationship. You weren't made to worship. You were made to be in relationship. And a healthy relationship with God should lead you to want to worship. That's the idea there. You weren't made just so that God can sit up in heaven and go, that was a lovely anthem. That's not what was happening. I'm sure God enjoyed that anthem. But at the same time, you were created for something even deeper. You were created to be connected in body, mind, heart, and spirit to God. And God has tried to give us multiple opportunities to experience God's self. Not only in relationship through the persons of the Trinity, but in relationship with us through the different persons of the Trinity. The longer I'm alive, the more I cultivate more of an appreciation for the different persons of the Trinity. When I was growing up, I especially liked God the Father. I have a lovely father, and that resonated very deeply with me, but it resonated with me because I was a child who had a good father. Not everybody has had that experience. Not everybody has had an earthly father. And so you see that sometimes the, the beauty of the plurality of the persons of the Trinity is that if something isn't resonating, it's not that we're one and done and we can never relate to God, but instead that God has found just these wonderful ways of in, engaging with and continuing to nurture that relationship with us as individuals, but also collectively as community in faith. And so we see that happening throughout the scriptures. But the older I get, and the more that I'm a parent, the more I have a deep appreciation 
for some of the things that God the Father experiences in the Old Testament, right? If you have a child and your child gets older and they hit teenage, there's something happening there. And I'm aware that there are like hormones and the body is shifting and the brain is going through some flux, but it's really the mouth that I find to be in the most transition. <laughs> and so what I've discovered is, you know, we, my child likes to engage in what we'll call debate. Likes to debate what I've said, what I've asked to be done, what I've ordered to be done, whatever it is. If it's coming out of my mouth, it's going to come back in some new way out of his. And so we engage with this, but at the end of the day, you want to pull the benevolent dictator card and go, this is what's happening, right? And in some ways, you kind of see that happening in the Old Testament, right? God goes through all of these machinations in Exodus to ensure that God's people can be set free from by Pharaoh and the Egyptians and, and come to the promised land. And they're coming out and they go through the Dead Sea. Like, I mean, there's all this miraculous story about it. And then they get out there and the first thing they start to do is complain. Like a teenager. They complain. We used to have meat. We used to have cucumbers. Really, in the grand scheme of things, it's cucumbers you want to go back to slavery for? Cucumbers. I don't understand it. We had clean water. Okay, now that one I'm starting to get. But they start to complain about everything. Like, why did you bring us out here? Like, things were better back then. You were in 400 years of bondage and slavery. They were not better. That's a lie. Not true. And yet the people are like in this place where their brain ain't quite broken with everything. And so it's a very frustrating thing for God. And finally, God has a bad parental moment, right? God the Father says to Moses, all right, that's it. I'm done. We're going to wipe them all out. We'll start again with you. And Moses is like, as your, your public relations representative, that will not be smart uh, or easy for me at all. If you brought them all the way out here to kill them, you know, that is just not going to look good for Egypt. Like, that's just going to kind of make you look like a psychopath. Um, so I would prefer that you not do that. And God the Father goes, okay, fine, I won't. But you know how sometimes you just have to, like, say it, but you're not actually going to do it? You know, like sometimes when I say to my child, I brought you into this world and I will take you out and say nice things at your funeral. That is exactly, you know, I'm not going to do it, but you say it because it just feels good in the moment, right? You say it. And so that's what God the Father kind of did. And so now when I read the Old Testament, I'm like, oh, right there, right there, right? But then you also have moments where you understand what God the Son is experiencing, right? If you've ever read the stories of Jesus where he's trying so hard to love people and to get people to repeat that love with each other, right? And then you get Peter who walks up and is like, okay, so um, when one of our, you know, my siblings in faith over here, when they sin against me, how many times do I have to forgive them? Not when one of us sins against the other. Notice it's like somebody is definitely sinning against Peter. Like, we're all on notice that somebody's going to sin against Peter. Not Peter's going to sin against anybody else, but they're going to sin against Peter. And Peter wants to know, how many times do I have to forgive them? Right? And we live in a culture that kind of likes the three strikes and you're out rule, uh, you know, American baseball style. But instead, Jesus says seven times seven, or 77, depending on what you see. And seven is the number of completion. So you have to keep doing it until it is done. And who says when it's done? You'll be done when Jesus comes back. That's when you're done. And nobody likes that number. Nobody likes that number, right? Because we've all had those people where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this with you again. I can't do it with you again, right? And then you hear Jesus, seven times seven. 
And you're like, I don't know that I can do that. And Jesus is like, look at the cross. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Right? And you're like, okay, all right. And then you read the stories of when Jesus is like, and so blessed will be all of these people who the world says should be ostracized and penalized, but blessed will be they because I love them, God loves them, we are going to love these people. And people are like, but I don't like those people. Like, I mean, these ones are fine, but those, I don't know. And Jesus is like, love all the people, love them. And we as human beings are like, but can we get like a little asterisk or like a little footnote that says like, you know, just some of these people are not okay to love because I'm just not going to get there. We want that, right? And then you see Jesus being like, okay, what part of everyone did you not get? What part? And so you see that and you start to kind of have this affinity of like, oh, Jesus knew what it was like to be frustrated by people. Doesn't that resonate with you? What it's like to be frustrated with people and what it's like to be frustrated with the people who are closest to you. That'll resonate with us too. And then you have the Holy Spirit. God love the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets kind of the short shrift in a lot of theologies. Like you have people like, God the Father, God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit's like over here. Like the Holy Spirit is really important. The Holy Spirit is through the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was referred to as the Spirit of the Lord, which is just a fancy way of reversing Holy Spirit. If it's of the Lord, it is holy. If it's a spirit, of the Lord, it is a spirit that is holy, Holy Spirit. And then in the New Testament, we get it just as the Holy Spirit, or the advocate or the comforter, whichever version we're reading at this time. But what you end up seeing is that the Holy Spirit has been the one that has been with us through everything. Through everything. And if you've ever had a relationship in your life that you have been through the ups and the downs, you've been at the high mountaintops and the glory and the celebration and the joy, and you have been in the valley of the shadow of death then you understand what the Holy Spirit has had to experience in us, right? Constantly being like, look, we're going to this glorious promised land, and we're going to go in here, and we're going to get in there, and then you all will never have to worry about being enslaved or suffering at the hands of Pharaoh ever again. It's going to be great. And people are like, I don't think we can do it. There's like large people living there, really tall people. And the Holy Spirit is like, no, 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 we can do this. We brought you out of Egypt. We can do this. Let's go. And the people are like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I think we should just like stay here in the desert. This seems doable. And you feel like the Holy Spirit going, no, 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 no. Do not be satisfied with this. Your potential. I see your potential. Come with me. Come with me. And so when we're talking about modalism, we're talking about denying the full godness of these persons. We make them less. In fact, when I was talking to Alan Combs, the chair of the theology committee, he said, sometimes, sometimes we get monarchical modalism. And everybody on the team was like, yeah, that's terrible. That's, monarchical modalism is awful, right? Yeah, totally. And then later on, we were headed to dinner, and we're like, who Googled it? What does that mean? <laughs> what is he talking about? Like, what, what? What is monarchical modalism? Monarchical modalism is when you put God the Father over everybody else. When you think that, like, this one's the king of the Trinity. That's why I reversed it and put God the Father on the bottom and the Son and the Holy Spirit there. Not because they are over the Father or the Father is over them, but because I'm kind of turning things on its head because I don't want you to think about monarchical modalism, right? And then sometimes modalism gets a little weird. Sometimes it's not just, you know, the H2O thing, but then it becomes roles, right? Like, um, for instance, I am a mother, I am a daughter, and I am a pastor, and the thing is that I'm not usually all of those things at the same time. 
and to the same person. Those roles change based upon who I'm engaging with or the context in which I find myself. So for instance, most people act one way toward me when I am Pastor Sarah, that my son does not act toward me because I'm mom. And mom is very different. Now, I will say, I bless my son because usually when we're in public, he doesn't treat me like mom. But then when we get in the car, it's like, mom. <laughs> right? It happens. It comes out. And so you realize that those are roles. I'm the same person. And trust me, mom remembers everything when she's Pastor Sarah. Everything. But it's a different level, right? Those are not just roles I'm playing or, you know, relationship aspects of me. Like, I am this person, and sometimes I'm in a role, but God is not doing that. God is saying, no, I have revealed myself to you in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, right? Those are the words that we hear in the Nicene Creed. We hear these words because people are trying to figure it out, and then if you're not careful, people try to get around modalism. They try to take like the back way around it, and then you come up with partialism. It's all isms, right? Partialism. Partialism is where you have like a big round circle and you divide it into threes, right? And you're like, okay, here's this part of God that is Jesus. Here's this part of God that is God the Father. Here's, no, 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 no. We, we don't cut God up like a steak. That's not what's happening. We don't do that. You got to be really careful about how you articulate those things. But let me qualify that. Clergy have to be really careful. If you got up somewhere and you did something that was partialism or modalism, we would go, okay, that's not quite right, but good effort right? But if one of us did it, it would be like, oh, no, 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 no. Because what happens is your theology starts to come out in your words. It starts to come out in the way you think, and your thoughts never stay inside. Have you ever noticed that? They never stay inside. They come out in your words, your relationships, the way you act, the way you act towards people that you have feelings about. You know, you see it. It comes out. It kind of leeches out. Just like every now and then in the practice of ministry, even though we're not the theology committee, Theology informs practice of ministry. And so when we would say, what inspired you to do that? Out comes a little theology. It just kind of like filters out, right? A little bit like over here. And then one day, we had a candidate who was saying something, and all of a sudden they started saying, because, you know, I understand the Trinity better now because I'm a father and a husband. And I was like, ah, modalism! <laughs> but I'm like trying to like keep it all on the inside. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, great. And then the person leaves, and uh, we're talking about, you know, we have to, like, debrief afterwards. And I was like, um, okay, so modalism, but I have no doubt that Alan will find that in theology, so we just won't even address that here. We'll just leave that for Alan. And sure enough, when we got together, and Alan was like, and they need to be careful about using metaphors that are modalism. And I was like, see, the Holy Spirit will take care of it. Alan got it. We didn't have to worry about it. But it comes out. It comes out in some ways. So here's the thing. In the church... We try not to label something as irredeemable. But heretic is pretty irredeemable. How do you come back from heretic? We have people in the scriptures and in the tradition of the church who have been murderers, who have been all kinds of sinners. I mean, everything from violent sin to social sin, all kinds of crazy sin. And we can forgive them and we can allow them to be redeemed. But when you label somebody a heretic... They are never taking off those scarlet letters. Never. Because even in the tr tradition and the history of the church, if you get somebody to recant, which is really easy to do when you're burning them with hot pokers, if you get somebody to recant, there's always this like, I don't know, can you trust them? They were a modalist. And you're like, oh, modalist. Oh, I'd rather deal with a murderer. 
I mean, it's, like, it's a little ridiculous. It's a little hypocritical, right? And you go, well, who's a murderer that we're dealing with? Moses, David. There's a few of them in there. How about Paul? Paul used to be part of the murder of people. And so you see that, like, yes, we have all kinds of things that we have said God can overcome and redeem. But then when we label a person a heretic, it's like, well, everything but that. Everybody's redeemable but those heretic people. That's what we want to be able to say. But that's not who God is, and that's not what God says. So we have to be real careful about that. But in the church, it's the one place where we should be able to say, you know what? We're not that smart. We're not God, and it's okay. It's okay not to have all the answers. And there are some people, some personalities that are like, we can't say that. Somebody has to have the answers. But we don't have all the answers. Because unless you got up in the morning and looked in the mirror and saw God, you don't have all the answers. Now, if you did wake up in the morning and you went and go, God, I'm good, then that's a whole other psychological issue. And we'll have to deal with that on another day. Different worship series entirely. But then what happens if you play out modalism, right? What happens if you play it out? Eventually, you get some people who start to go down kind of this dark path. And what they end up doing is saying, well, you know, if God is just playing a role, then maybe Jesus was just kind of like a shell. God wasn't fully human. God was just, you know, kind of pretending. And then didn't actually suffer on the cross, didn't actually experience that death. That's called docetism. We'll cover that next week. Come back. And what that does, right, what does that do if you start, if you lead down a road that says that Jesus wasn't fully human and really didn't know what it was like to be one of us? What does that mean if you go down a path that says that this was all a sham, a play, a ploy to make you think that salvation was sufficient? I don't think God is playing around with eternity like that. So sometimes you have to be careful with it. Now, but again, if you came to my office tomorrow and you said, you know what, I think I'm a modalist, you're still going to be okay here. You're still gonna, I'm not going to let you preach, but you're still going to be okay. <laughs> right? You're going to be okay. Because here's the big thing. Modalism can lead to problems. It sure can. I mean, it can. Any, any theology that was deemed heretical can lead to problems. But the theology of modalism is not trying to deny the Trinity, it is just misunderstanding it. If you start to deny the Trinity, then we got some problems. Because as I said to our confirmands this morning in our first meeting, the one thing that brings all of Christianity together, the one thing is the Trinity. We can disagree on everything else. We can disagree on what songs to sing. We can disagree on what parts of the Bible we want to read. We can disagree on the sacraments. We can disagree on literally everything but the Trinity. We agree on the Trinity. And it's like, if that isn't a work of the Holy Spirit, I don't know what is. That of over 64,000 denominations in Christendom, the one thing that brings us all together is the Trinity. And it's like if we lose that one thing, we are completely disbanded. We are scattered. But yet God revealing God's self in three distinct persons, all of their essence co-equal in the Godhead, says that we can come together. We can come together and we can build on that. It might just be the only block we have, but we can build on it. 
When I was in sixth grade in Fairfax County, they used to take us out on this field trip that was only for sixth graders. And they would take us out to this place that had like a ropes course, and you had to figure out how to do all this stuff. And so you'd have dozens of sixth graders, and sometimes they'd subdivide us into smaller groups, but I mean, you'd easily have like 24 people. And they'd be like, here is a three by three foot platform. I need you to get 40 kids on it. And you're like, what? And like, figure out how to get 40 kids on a three foot by three foot platform. And I remember we're all looking at it, like maybe it'll grow. I don't know, you know, you're like, what, what? how do you do that? And you're just like trying to figure out like, okay, who can handle 12 people on their shoulders? Right, you're trying to figure out how to make it work, but you know how you make it work? I will never forget this. You make it work by a perimeter around the circle and the perimeter holds hands and leans back and creates a wider circle. And then people come underneath the arms and stand and link and lean and lean. And you're all supporting each other, but you are held up by this one three foot by three foot square. That three foot by three foot square in Christendom is the Trinity. And that's why we have voraciously protected it over the course of the years. That's why we wrote the Apostles' Creed. That's why we then wrote the Nicene Creed, because we were like, no matter what happens, we're all going to come back and meet here at the Trinity. We're going to divide on all kinds of issues. Who can be ordained? Who can't? Who can be? What levels of membership they have? We'll, we'll diverge on all kinds of things. But no matter what happens, we're going to come back and meet here at the Trinity. And so it matters what we say about the Trinity. It matters. If we try to liquidate it, then we will destroy our firm foundation. And we need it. Because in a world that loves division, a world that loves tearing things apart and not building things up, we've got to have a place to stand together. And that place is the Trinity. And the Bible doesn't contain the word Trinity. Hopefully you've read enough of it now to know that. But it doesn't. It doesn't contain that. But it contains the formula. In the Gospel account of Matthew, while, while Jesus is giving his final decree to the apostles, he says to them, I want you to go forth and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Doesn't give them all the nuances of essence and co-equal persons, but tells them that. And then when we have these moments, like at the baptism of Jesus in all four Gospel accounts, where all three persons of the Trinity show up together, it's a beautiful moment. And it's there. It's nuanced. We have to look a little deeper for it, but it is there. And all of it is telling us that no matter what denomination or affiliation we have, no matter how we feel about certain doctrines and dogmas within greater Christianity, at the end of the day, let's meet here. Let's meet here. And as long as we have that trinity, we can. There's no secret handshake in the church. There's no membership card that you can get. There's no special privileges that like certain people are better Christians than other people and so they get to be like closer to Jesus. That's not what we have. But we do have one thing and that is our trinity. And so if you can say the trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Congratulations. You are just as powerful and profound as the rest of us. And if you stop right there, you can pass the Board of Ordained Ministry. If you stop right there. 
But the problem is that we, because we're human beings, we want to just keep going. Let me show you how much I know. Let me show you what I have learned. Let me show you these things. And sometimes what we need to hear and see is God is a holy mystery. Don't understand God fully, but what I do understand, I love because I have first been loved. And because of that, I'm going to love others. If we can do that, then our theology is right on par. And that's what we should yearn to have. A theology that blesses, that doesn't burden. A theology that is good and wholesome and encourages people to unite with God. Not a theology that is hurtful and divisive. Because hurtful and divisive theology can't hold the Trinity together. And that's where we need to be. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.